Chopin, to give him his full name, was a naturally extravagant young man with an insolent turn of speech. He had been educated after a fashion, but could barely read and write. He devoted the greater part of his time to cockfighting, horse racing, and outings to places of scenic interest. Though an imperial purveyor, he was wholly innocent of business skill and savoir-faire. And though, for his father's and grandfather's sake, he was allowed to register at the ministry and receive regular payments of grain and money, everything else was looked after for him by the clerks and factors of the family business. This is the fifth installation of Rereading the Stone. Kevin Wilson here uh, with my co-host, Will Jones. Uh, Will, how are you doing? Oh, pretty good today, yeah. It's, uh, the hot summer weather is broken, and uh, there's rainstorms all around here in Hong Kong. How are things in Southern California? Yeah, it's, uh, there's no rain, that's for sure. Actually, a, a number of fires uh, locally that have been uh, like on and off. The air smells like smoke. Um, but you guys, you guys are just in like a permanent state of drought there, right? Yeah, yeah, it never rains. Uh, like, yeah, maybe like once a year at most. It's it's a miraculous event. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's it's crazy to me. It's I, I kind of like imagine living in such a place. Um, although actually, I come to think of it, I did live very briefly in um, in like the Middle East in the Gulf, and it rains like once a year there as well. Uh, everyone freaks out. Nobody knows how to drive in the rain, and so there's a huge number of car crashes. Um, good time all around. Mm-hmm. We have the same dynamic, yeah. Like, there's really poor uh, uh, nothing. Yeah. I'm, I'm originally from Pittsburgh, and so like we understand all the elements. Uh, so I, there's no correlation between rain yeah. and, and like massive uh, car crashes, to my knowledge. So we are this week. We're on chapter four of. Uh, the yeah. the Chinese classic uh, story of the stone Shi Tou Ji, also known as Hong Lu Meng, Dream of the Dream Red, of Chamber. Red Chamber. Things are really heating up. We're going to see some returning characters, uh, a few plot twists, uh, a lot of action, a lot of uh, kind of moral quandaries. Uh, you know, a lot of nitty gritty. I'd say this chapter is less on the uh, you know on the ideal dream end of the spectrum, more you know on the street. You know, in the dirt, uh, there's blood on various people's hands. Um, mm. A lot to talk about, a lot to think about. Uh, not easy for us to judge this from the uh, from our modern perspectives, uh, or, or to even evaluate it in, in a kind of objective standard. Yeah. Given how how much we ourselves are uh, kind of um, intertwined in our you know immediacy in our own history and culture, should we jump right into the preview? Sh- um, sure, sure. So, shall we just recap where we got up to last time? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, in chapter three, 
the character Jiayu Tsun, who at the beginning of the book is a uh, impoverished intellectual uh, who then passes the official examinations and becomes a, a civil servant, uh, which is the path to you know money and power, but then manages to annoy the wrong people and is booted out. We find him um, in one part of China working for working as a tutor for the daughter of a rich man. Um, she's a young daughter. Um, we think, I think perhaps she's sort of about 10 or 11 years old. Um, anyway, because she is rather sickly um, and because her mother uh, is also taken ill and she spends a lot of time caring for her, Jiayu Tsun has a lot of free time to himself and he often goes wandering. And um, uh, while out wandering one day, he finds an old friend uh, and then bumps into yet another old friend who tells him that although the emperor had been displeased with him, which is why he had been removed from his post, that displeasure has now uh, been resolved and he's allowed to take up a new post. Meanwhile, um, his student's mother uh, has passed away and her father decides he has no interest in <clears throat> the business of raising his child and so decides to cart her off to uh, her other family in the capital. Um, so because Jiayu Tsun is going there as well to find out about his pardon and his new his new posting, uh, he accompanies this daughter, whose name is Lin Daiyu, to the capital. And much of the chapter covers Lin Daiyu's um, experience of meeting her family in the capital, who are part of a great clan, the, the Jia clan, uh, which has two particularly kind of illustrious branches, the Ningguo branch and the Rongguo branch. And so we see much of the chapter through her eyes, worrying about matters of etiquette and where to sit and how to address people and, and how to be, you know, how to observe the appropriate formalities. And then we also encounter uh, one of the most important characters in the book, um, uh, Jia Baoyu, uh, a male character, uh, a child of about the same age as her, who is very spoiled, very coddled, but we kind of think rather uh, brilliant at the same time. She makes a passing comment about this piece of jade that he wears around his neck, which is the same piece of jade that was found in his mouth, and we understand is the same stone as in the story of the stone, this giant block of rock we met right in chapter one. Uh, this causes him to fly into a rage, and uh, she's very upset at having caused him to become angry. Uh, but eventually his, his anger is sort of coddled. And then we hear right at the end of the chapter that um, there is news from another part of the country that one of the relatives of the Jia family has been charged with uh, murdering someone. Uh, and that is where the chapter ends. So, so we pick up with that at the beginning of chapter four. Okay. Any first impressions? Well, it's it's kind of fascinating to me because uh, you know, in my um, when I'm not podcasting, um, I actually work as a lawyer, so um, it's really interesting to get this insight uh, in this chapter into how um, how the legal system of the Qing Dynasty worked and how cases like this would have been dealt with. Um, without giving too much away, I might just say very differently to today. Okay. <laughs> okay, that, that's a good way to kind of. Uh... <laughs> To tease the uh, the content, sure. Um, so, where should we begin? Should we simply start working through the material? Yeah, let's start at the start. Before the show started, we were talking a little bit about uh, Li Shoujong. Mm. 
what do you think about Lee Shojong and how, how does he relate to um, the rest of the Jack clan? So Lee Shojong is the father of one of the wives of one of the Jia men. So Jia Zhu, who is one of the Jia men, married this woman, Li Wan, and it's her father, Li Shojong, that is, uh, he's described as a distinguished Nanjing official who had been director of education. So, you know, we, we, get, we get the feeling that he's this kind of upstanding member of the establishment. And we learn this quite interesting thing about him, which is that prior to his becoming kind of patriarch of his family, all of the women in his clan had been given a first-class education. So we kind of assume, you know, more or less on, on, on equal terms with the men in the clan. But when he, once he was in charge, all of that changed uh, and decided that basically there was no value in educating women. I, I don't know, it's interesting to me because the, the <laughs> in a very kind of like ignorant and roundabout way, I guess most people's impression, including mine, of many parts of history generally is that generally women were were not educated, were denied access to education, or, you know, you know, either weren't able to to get it or were actively impeded uh, in it. And so it's interesting to hear that at a time prior to this, women were were educated to a level comparable with men and then had it taken away from them. Right. And we saw a little bit of that in the last chapter in the difference between uh, Lin Dayu's education and and those of her cousins, right? Who it was just assumed that they uh, almost were unable to read and weren't apparently mm-hmm. learning how to. And so the question is whether that's going to reflect more generally on, on this branch of the, the clan's attitude toward education or whether that's specifically um, with regard to women or female yeah. members of the clan. And so I was trying to, still not knowing all the details of what's going to happen, I was trying to kind of sort through the pieces, get a sense for what's being, you know, mm-hmm. foreshadowed. So we hear that basically uh, Li Wan, this, um, the woman in question who's denied the education, um, she was allowed to study just a few things. Uh, just, you know, so she was <clears throat> able to read a few characters and allowed to study a few books, but not very much. And it mentions two, the four books for girls and the lives of noble women. And we did a little bit of digging and looked into what these four books for women uh, are. It's pretty much exactly as you would expect. So the four books for women include one called the the, the female analects, the new lunyu. Um, and the chapters of that book uh, are called things like learning etiquette, getting up early, serving the parents-in-law, serving the husband, managing the household, etc. So, so you can see that abundantly clear that she, I guess, is denied any any real education, and the limited education that she is given is directed purely at yes, I guess, sort of developing that role of uh, you know very kind of traditional housewife type figure. Denied any kind of yeah, opportunity to, to, to study anything else. Um, they also mentioned the uh, Lian Udran, um, which was written by Ban Zhao, who's the brother of Ban Gu, uh, who wrote the, uh, the Han Shu, one of the major... He's like not as yeah. big as Sima Chen, China's um, foremost uh, yeah. early historian, right? But he's kind of like right, yeah. second in line, you know, second most famous... And so she's also um, one of the most famous female scholars. Uh, it would be interesting to see. Um, I know these works have been translated recently, and there might be some like content there that isn't purely moralistic. Yeah, that'd be a, you know an area for like further research. But again, this kind of um, indicates the I think 
the the depth of this novel, but also the mm. um, kind of the depth of the the culture uh, that we're, we're yeah. dealing with. It, it's a sort of sad irony, isn't it, that Li Yuan, the character here, is permitted only to read these two books, and one of them, as you say, is written by this woman Ban Zhao, mm. who, as you've mentioned, is one of China's most f- foremost female historians. You know, accepting accepting. Uh, the modern period, I suppose. And you mentioned that uh, she, in fact, completed the the history of the Han, which her brother had started, um, which in itself is a is a kind of formidable achievement. And so there's this kind of grim irony that one of the few works that this woman who's denied education, one of the few works that she's allowed to read is by another woman who lived many centuries prior, who not only had access to education, but was able to leave behind a kind of, this kind of very significant sort of stamp on Chinese history, I suppose, mm-hmm. who made a very significant contribution, I suppose, to Chinese history. Mm-hmm. Um, For sure, yeah. So anyway, so in this initial section, we're, we, we've almost kind of walked in on some of the some of the adult characters discussing family affairs, uh, uh, including the the, um, the murder referred to, um, and there's this little diversion where we talk about Li Wan and her and her background, but eventually we kind of jump into the story of the murder and uh, and everything going on there for sure yeah this novel is is full of a, a large number of highly improbable coincidences <laughs> um even even in the first few chapters so our friend jia yutun who is the young penniless inte- uh, intellectual turned government official turned teacher turned government official again uh his new posting is as magistrate of a place called what they refer to it as ying tian fu so Ying Tian, essentially. And the first case that he has to deal with as magistrate is this murder, the murder in question, by a relative of the Jia clan. And as we'll discover later on, just to pile ridiculous coincidences on top of each other, uh, his new assistant, although he doesn't recognize him at first, is someone he used to know from his penniless days living in the in the bottle gourd temple so anyway you want to talk us through what happens here i'll, I'll try i have some kind of key uh quotations i'm not sure if we in previous um podcasts whether we mentioned the the attendant i recall him basically sending a yutun out as he's departing uh as jayutun is departing on his way to the capital to take the examination so and so he's a pretty minor character but he kind of reemerges. Mm. Um, I forget what the Hawks translation is. In the original, it's like Menza. He's like a, a almost like a doorman, uh, a steward, or yeah. I think they say usher. Uh, usher, yeah. okay. Yeah, which has you know, I guess a lot of the same connotation, maybe. Yeah, same sort of connotations. I just thought it was kind of interesting. My like uh, my sort of obsession with um, liminal analysis had me thinking of him as his. He was originally attending the space between heaven and earth as this religious figure, where he's kind of in the gateway between um, mortal affairs and supernatural um, kind of entities. And so he was sort of an usher for the gods earlier. Mm-hmm. But after the temple um, burned down and his, you know, his, his fortune changed, he sort of used that opportunity to basically find a new job as a kind of very minor governmental official. And so it's, again, he's still in the gateway a little bit. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if that's a, a kind of an overinterpretation. No, I think it's a good point. And I mean, it's, yeah. as you say, it's there in his name, Munzer. It's, um, you know, the, yeah, the, the, it's uh, like a, 
gate person. And we'll see in a second what happened, what his ultimate fate is. He's he's basically sent off to the frontiers, which is again this kind of um, in between yeah. space. And, and we see this, we see this a few exactly, times. Exactly. Yeah. Not only in this novel, but we, we you also see it a lot in Chinese history, where if there is a contentious figure, you know, like a younger brother who might uh, attempt to usurp the throne, uh, one one way to deal with them. Uh, would be to to send them to a frontier region uh, where it's like it's yeah, the, the space between you know completely um, you know like eliminating them you know through murder or some plot, but also respecting filial norms. Uh, so there's a lot of this this kind of this um, relocation is a major theme, and, and I guess the the size, the relatively vast size of the the Chinese Empire allows for this. Um, this dynamic where yeah. you know something that happened in one town, if maybe you needed to leave that town but go to another town, you, you can start a new life. Even in America, you see that sometimes. Yeah. You, you know, you, <laughs> you yeah, know, something you, you make a bad name for you yourself in one town, so you, maybe you move across the country and change your name and you just start a whole new life and create a whole new set of problems, and you do it again and again and again. Yeah, yeah, I think it's the kind of thing that, as you say, it's only really possible in those big countries. I feel like it's not really possible somewhere like the UK where I'm from. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You, you can't just give it all up and start afresh in, in a different part of the country because that's only three hours away from where you were before. Mm. I have a quote from the the Hawks translation that I think will kind of introduce the the um, the affair, right? So, so no sooner had uh, Yusun arrived at his new post that a, a case involving manslaughter was referred to his tribunal. It concerned two parties in dispute over the purchase of a slave girl. Neither had been willing to give way to the other, and in the ensuing affray, one of the parties had been wounded and had subsequently died. And so then, so what we find out is that a man had purchased uh, mm-hmm. like a, a slave girl. Um, we learn eventually that he had intended to maybe to yeah. effectively marry her. The exact details aren't entirely specified. And because he was treating this event yeah. as more than simply a transaction, he wanted to wait three days yeah. after purchasing the, the girl before accepting mm-hmm. her into his household. And this three-day waiting period uh, is kind of an, an allusion to um, a kind of a standard um, betrothal, a wedding um, ceremony. But, you know, the, the, the person who was selling the girl, which supposedly unbeknownst to the purchaser, uh, he actually had kidnapped the girl. And so this is, to us, a very uh, a little strange distinction between like selling a slave and selling a kidnapped person. And so... Yeah. You're, either way, you're selling a person, which is right. I don't know, so, so it's so like strange and repugnant to uh, us in the modern day. Right. So from our viewpoint, it's a it's kind of a maybe a, a small distinction, but it, it's a, an important distinction for this case where yeah. you know, like slavery is technically legal, mm-hmm. it would seem, but um, but kidnapping obviously is not. But anyway, during this three three day waiting period, the um, the kidnapper slash um, slaver uh, yeah, yeah. seller. Um, he actually resells the girl and so is able to double his profits, mm-hmm. essentially. And he sells her to a, a wealthy man uh, named Shre Pan. Yeah. Um, and so that's, I guess for people following along, Shre is uh, X-U-E. So that's his surname, yeah. uh, as we've discussed in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, this Shre family is going to be really important yeah. uh, for the rest of the story. It's one, another one of these major, it's not simply a, like a, a regular surname in this capacity it's more like a, a noble designation yeah right yeah it's a very illustrious 
family. And so now there's the issue of, okay, this girl has been sold to both this man, Feng Yuan, yep, yeah. or his, his surname is Feng, yeah, he, and this other fellow, um, who's also fairly young himself, Shri uh, uh, mm-hmm. And and then they basically get in a fight over the girl and Shripan, who has like a whole like assortment of goons, basically, because he's extremely rich. He beats Feng to death. And that's the uh, that's the manslaughter in question. Yeah. Meanwhile, uh, Shripan has left Nanjing where they are. And he's he's already on his way to uh, the capital up north, uh, Beijing, basically. Yeah. And he doesn't even uh, appear personally at the trial. Uh, he, he sends some you know, some like distant associates uh, to kind of to represent him. Is, is that a decent summary? Yeah, absolutely. And it is so strange when you think about it that both the idea of the of how normal it was to buy and sell people, but also this fine distinction between her being a slave and her being someone who's been kidnapped. Because you, you kind of think, well, how did they become a slave in the first place if they weren't uh, kidnapped or otherwise, you know, somehow forcibly taken or otherwise coerced into, into that kind of role, I guess, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. into that position. Um, there was something I wanted to pick up on, which was the three-day wait. Um, as you say, that was in somehow kind of mimicking or aping or just a, a, a kind of nod of the head to traditional mm-hmm. wedding practices in China. But it's, it also mentions that the third day is somehow like a he's picked it because it's a lucky day, basically. And that's kind of a little bit of an echo of what happens in Chapter 1. So in Chapter 1, oh, right, right, we exactly. have Jiayu Tsun back in his penniless days and this older, more wealthy friend of his, Zhen Xiyin, who agrees to give him money to go to the capital to take the civil service exams, uh, which will enable him to you know, progress and, and, and become a, an official in his own right. And Zhen Xiyin says, okay, you should leave you know, two or three days from now because that's the most auspicious day according to this almanac I've looked at. Uh, because you know, in... in, in, in in the Chinese tradition, there are there are certain days that are more or less, uh, I guess, sort of auspicious mm-hmm. for doing various things. Um, and um, Jason kind of nods along, uh, and then as soon as he's out the door, he just he pretty much sets off straight away. He doesn't decide, you know, he's he he has no truck with kind of waiting around several days for the for the appropriate day. And here you have this kind of sad echo where, um, well, for 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 the murdered man anyway, if he had. Uh, not waited for this three-day period, then he wouldn't have found himself in this mess. Um, so I don't know. It feels like there's almost a kind of slightly implied criticism from Cao Xueqian, uh using these two examples of that that kind of system. Um, I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm reading too much into it, but uh, there's certainly like a kind of observable parallel between those two. Interesting. Yeah, I had not thought of that actually. Um... Do you believe the, is it a criticism of like a superstitious practice or is it? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Uh, it, it, it strikes me as a trying to designate some days as being somehow more, more lucky or more auspicious than others. The suggestion is that that practice is, as you say, exactly superstition and ultimately, ultimately baseless, I suppose. Okay. Another thing I was thinking of kind of along these lines uh is this question of i mean we are quick to um dismiss the the idea that um his waiting 3 days i mean even if it's not simply superstitious but if it, it is like kind of a an adherence a strange kind of a, a adherence to ritual yeah um because it is in the context of this transaction that that it can't be uh 
uh, ritualistic, just de facto. But mm-hmm. but I, I wonder whether um, the um, response to that might be, you know, what you know, marriage in this society wasn't, um, you know, attended by the transfer of wealth and property. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, I mean, if you think back to Jayutun's own wedding to his his second wife, mm-hmm. who was also a, a servant girl, although right. in that case, it is much more strongly suggested that the 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 feelings between them are mutual, and there's mm-hmm. some kind of you know reciprocity of feeling. Uh, in that case, when he decides to marry her. Exactly, it's completely transactional. He sends over, you know, X amount of silver and Y amount of fine cloth uh, as gifts to uh, to the family that she works for. So you're right; it's kind of funny. It's kind of strange to to take such a romantic view of it. I, I mean, I'm definitely of two minds. Um, and, and so, as I was mulling through this, then there's also the issue of they make a big deal of how uh, you know Mr. Fung had originally been, in, in the Hawks translation, a, a confirmed queer. Yeah, that's the word they use. Uh, and not interested in girls. And then the, the line goes on, which shows that the whole business must have been faded. Because no sooner did he set his eyes on this girl, that he, that he once fell in love with her, swore that he would never have anything more to do with boys, yeah. and have only her uh, as his woman. Uh. Uh, and, and so there's just so much going on. It's just like, wait, it, it again, it has a strange attitude toward um, kind of homosexual encounters that is at once more open than standard or, or traditional Western views, but yeah. at the same time is also strangely dismissive. Yeah, um, indeed, indeed. Uh, it's, it's, um, you're right. It's, <laughs> it's like, uh, as you said, it, it's more accepting in the sense that the fact that he, is homosexual is observed without any judgment that you might expect from a more conservative society and they just move on quickly but at the same time you have this incredibly like insulting thing of implying that his homosexuality is actually just contingent on finding the right girl um (laughs) right (laughs) which that's a sign of fate for some reason Uh, which is there's a lot going on there where it's like mm, I'm not sure if I uh, really like agree with this assessment and and you wonder whether uh, Tao Shijin is also sort of um, yeah kind of playing with or, or maybe satirizing a little bit or, or whether he he's on board with this assessment it, it's 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 hard to read there is uh, as they say a huge amount to unpack there um, <laughs> uh-huh. um, exactly exactly I think it is interesting um, just as like a um, observation of society at the time to have albeit in a very minor capacity an openly gay character Mm -hmm. you know there's no getting away from the fact that this is a tremendously conservative society in a lot of senses in terms of there being very strict hierarchies very strict adherence to traditional norms uh very strict division uh along gender lines you would assume that as a society um attitudes towards homosexuality or indeed like any non kind of normative uh, sexual preference or identity would be yeah i guess kind of prescribed or frowned upon or or, or whatever but here it's us he does just seem to just kind of i, I don't know there doesn't uh, even though the term that hawks uses in his translation is queer quote unquote like it's funglio in the original if i'm not mistaken uh, which yeah, which term is i think in the hawks translation intended to be pejorative there's also this um, kind of interesting passage where Yutun, it says, Yutun sighed sympathetically. Mm. Their meeting cannot have been coincidental. It must have been the working out of some destiny, an atonement. 
Otherwise, how could you account for this sudden affection for this particular girl? And then he goes on to say how, you know, the idea was that, you know, even though this, this Fung character was relatively um, poor, whereas Shrey was extremely rich, but Shrey was also known for, yeah. you know, like uh, like rampant debauchery and, and having a number of, of concubines. They even say here, you know, in, in the translation, it's a real case of an ideal romance on one hand. And so it's like, this is not what I call an ideal romance, but let's continue. And a pair of unlucky young things uh, on the other. And, and so it's quite a tragedy. Um, so again, I'm not sure if, if this character is being satirized. Mm-hmm. Um, the the term for ideal romance is meng huan qing yuan, right? And and so it's yeah. kind of like a, a dream, dream love, maybe a dream faded love, something like that. And, and the unlucky young things, uh, which again it it, uh, it uses this term bo ming. How would you translate that? Like uh, yeah, ill ill fated, yeah. A bad fate, yeah. a uh, ill-fated, right? And so it really does kind of lean into this, these ideas of, of fate and destiny um, in ways that I, yeah, I'm not sure whether we're, how we're supposed to evaluate that necessarily. Um, it, it is interesting that the big reveal um, is the identity of the girl, right? Yeah. To add to this pile of coincidences, the girl in question is none other than Ying Lian who is the daughter of Jun Shiyin, who's kidnapped as a young girl um, in the first chapter. Um, so you remember that Jun Shiyin begins the book in relatively comfortable circumstances. You know, he's, he's well off, he's well respected. And in relatively short order, um, his daughter is kidnapped, his house burns down, he loses pretty much all of his money, uh, and, and he ends up running off to become a, a Taoist monk. So yeah, so so it's none other than her, the girl in question. And uh, again, I, I guess sort of like, as has been typical so far in the book, there's very little weight or thought even accorded to her, what she thinks, how she feels, you know. We hear a lot about Xue, um, the man who, who bought her mm-hmm. second, and Feng Yuan, the man who bought her first. We don't really know if, <laughs> like, I guess we, we don't know that much about how she felt about being being sold or uh, or whether she was happy about being married to this man or what and, and i mean i i, I suggest that i guess she's like maybe like 13 years old as well which is also well in the politest possible terms not really um uh in accordance with uh you know an appropriate age to get married uh, uh, yeah yeah so there really is a lot going on here um there's a, a bit of an indication that uh having heard that the fellow uh was taking the three again the three-day waiting period mm. this sort of calmed her um her spirits slightly there's also they talk about how this is a special kind of kidnapper apparently he steals um children yeah. from from one area and relocates them to another city uh and sort of like waits yeah. until they, they become of marriageable age so so just talking about the case quickly it's pretty much open and shut. You know, it's, you have two men, one of them ordered the other to be beaten to death and then fled. The evidence is all there. And so you're thinking, why is it not being prosecuted? You know, why, why has nobody done anything about this? And, and the answer is, of course, that Xuepan comes from a very rich and influential family. Uh, and therefore, previous magistrates have been too scared to do anything about this case, to take it on. But the family of Feng Yuan, the murdered man, keep calling for justice. And so that's the bind that Jia Yuzun finds himself in. Now, he, he initially takes what I would you know, consider a, a pretty normal, reasonable response, which is to start drawing up you know, warrants and, and things, ordering you know, that 
the accused be brought before him and and you know wanting to interview people and, and all that kind of thing but his his usher uh his kind of assistant gives him a look as if to say maybe don't do that straight away uh and so so he hesitates and then they get into a conversation where the usher explains the Shreya family is one of you know four very rich and wealthy families uh and you absolutely do not want to get on the wrong side for sure yeah he even has like a like a song right or uh, a ditty yeah 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 so he pulls out something which in the hawks translation is called the mandarin's life preserver mandarin there yeah. being as in civil servant official rather than rather than the language uh which is yeah it's, it's a little book that tells you um which people the law doesn't apply to uh, basically <laughs> like uh who is rich and wealthy enough that you can't piss them off um and yeah absolutely there's a little ditty there's there's uh there's a kind of dreadful little poem um, uh, inside, which I think is I think is definitely worth. Um, do, you, do you want to do the honors? I'm, I'm not sure if I want to. What, I'm not sure if I want to read it. <laughs> well, I mean, it's kind of interesting looking through the through the Chinese. Uh, so it talks about four families: the the Jia family, mm-hmm. the Shu family, mm-hmm. the Wang family, yeah. and the Xue family. The Hawks translation. He really wants to preserve the rhymes. To the to the extent that he mm. uh, he has rhymes in the translation, but he like he completely just makes stuff up. Basically, uh, so some of these things simply aren't in the original. Yeah, uh, and so I was trying to figure out like, yeah, well, yeah, I'm not sure if that's the best strategy for translation <laughs> or tra- translating poems in particular. It, it seems like, mm. yeah, I think he kind of gets the gist of it, which is that it is he describes it as doggerel, you know. So it's kind of like a this is clearly distinct from the very like refined and intellectual forms of poetry that exist in China at that time. Whereas in traditional Chinese poetry, in like Shu poetry, for example, you will have like very strict things like five characters per line in stanzas of four lines or seven characters per line. In this case, they just kind of make it up. Mm-hmm. Um, like none of the lines are the same. There's no real like parallels or, 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 or uh, sort of fr- uh, structure or framework to it. And so in his in his poem, I think he tries to kind of draw on that a little. Um, I, there was one bit, the third the, the, the third stanza that I think uh, gives you, I think, the best example of mm-hmm. what the poem is trying to convey. So the first line is, Dong Hai, Chue Shao Bai Yu Chuang. When the Eastern Sea like lacks or needs a white jade bed, uh, Long Wang, Lai Qing, Jinling Wang, so the, the Dragon King comes to ask the Wang family of Jinling, i.e. Nanjing, that, you know, this, the suggestion is that this family is so rich that literally mythical figures that live in the sea will come to ask them for, like, jewels and, and stuff when, when they're in need of them. Um, like, that's, the, that's how rich they are. Uh, it's sort of like wealthier than God kind of thing is, 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 the, is the implication. I'm also obliged to mention, because we've been following the like the Jia surname and Jazz and fake connection pretty closely, because in, in, the, in the Hawks translation, yeah. is, the first line is just like, shout hip hooray, which is not at all in the original. The original is Jia Bu Jia, like uh, the Jia family is not fake. You know, yeah. they might be called fake, or but yeah. they aren't. You know, they're yeah. like they're real. They're like they they got the stuff kind of yeah. implication, uh, which again uh, really drives home the you know this kind of um, this element of the the reality and fiction dynamic or dialectic that we've been uh, addressing. The playing the playing on the names continues. Um, mm-hmm. So so uh, Jia Yusun, our 
magistrate in this case, uh, his usher shows him this book uh, and explains that it would be very unwise to prosecute this case too aggressively because he'll just end up uh, upsetting some rich people, uh, which is best avoided. Uh, and so he agrees to um, to a kind of fudge, you know, to arrive at a kind of settlement. His usher tells him, "Look, you know, I know where the I know where this guy's hiding, uh, but you can't prosecute him. You're just gonna you're gonna annoy people. You obviously can't do nothing because you know you need to, you need to be seen to be doing something. Um, uh, but honestly, the dead man's family just want money. You know, is is kind of what he says. Um, and he comes up with this really like slightly harebrained scheme um, where he says, what we'll do right is." Um, we'll pretend that the murderer has also died uh, and we'll say that it's um, uh, he died in retribution for his murder and then we'll do a seance where we speak to the ghost of Feng Yuan, the murdered man, and we'll get him to confirm that yes, like his ghost somehow killed Xue in retribution for his murder and, and now all, de- you know, all deaths are forgiven and, and, and so on and so forth. Which is the part that was kind of that that was very interesting to me um, to observe that uh, you know as 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 <laughs> as as a matter of legal practice for sure. Uh, really, I think there should be there should probably be more uh, seances and speaking to the dead um, uh, in courtrooms. Uh, I think that's a I think that's a really uh, innovative and interesting suggestion. And also, a really cynical use of these like religious ideas. Like you wonder if this is you know. Yeah, this is a sign of you know the age of materialism or something where you have these like, yeah. these ideas of I, I, in the in the Hawks translation it's a, a debt of karma uh, mm. Feng Yuan owes to Shui Pan. It's, it's simply being kind of uh, operationalized to tie up the knots and, and to make this issue go away. That's kind of like a very kind of brutal reading of the historical sort of um, role of religious religious ideas, re- religious ideology. It's, it's kind of funny to, to see it presented there, and, and you wonder whether that's also a critique or not. The fellow proposing it is from this religious background. Is he is this like using his applied, applying his skills in, in this new context? I, I wasn't sure how to... Yeah, exactly. I think, I think that's it. I think it's there's definitely like a an implied like satire of religious men and, and religious practice to to an extent you know he's given up the life in the temple and now he's operating firmly in the material world and that means using and indeed perverting the the religious ideas that he learned in the temple uh, to further human affairs uh, <laughs> uh, and anyway so the outcome is um jia yutun hears this idea and says it's a bit too risky um and he comes up with a solution where basically the shue family i.e. the family of the murderer, pay some money to the Fong family, and then the affair is kind of settled. They go off tolerably well satisfied. And then just for good measure, Jiayu Tsun decides that it's too risky to have someone from his past life working for him, in this case, the usher. Uh, And so he also, as you mentioned before, manages to sort of pack him off to military service on the frontier. Right. Uh, I was surprised by that as well. I thought maybe this would be a a cause for them to become like close associates or something but apparently not <laughs> yeah it, it it takes it takes a it takes a surprising time you're completely right it's unexpected it doesn't go it, it's it's a bit like in the previous chapter when uh Jayusun is out walking and he finds this temple um and he thinks there's going to be some great truth inside uh, and mm-hmm. and there's just a mad old monk and he can't get you know he can't get any 
kind of intelligible, comprehensible answers out of him. Um, so in that case, Sal builds us up to the expectation that we're going to get some kind of revelation and actually it's, you know, a damp squib. Uh, and exactly the same in this case, you think, oh, great. So he's from his past life and the usher is going to be like his, his like right-hand man is going to, you know, guide him and stuff. Uh, no, no. <laughs> Very much the opposite. Within a couple of pages, just carts him off to the army and that's the end of that. We never see him again. I mean, but the, the the kind of in the text, the transition that occurs is fairly uh, seamless. Insofar as now we we have a taste for this Shrepan individual, mm-hmm. yeah, um, and, and he's going to be kind of a, a semi-important character, and, and we, we kind of know of his brutality, uh, his licentiousness, yeah. And he is about to just like Lindayu, he's about to travel north and take his place in in the the Ja household. So. He, by various means, convinces the family that they should, as you say, go up to the capital, move up to the capital to to see their family there. And there's quite a good section in the text where Sal Xuechen talks about um, Xuepan's alleged reasons for wanting to go to the capital and then his, his real reasons. So, right. so, so he lists them out. They must go to the capital because he had to present his sister to the ministry for selection for this, this, this program previously mentioned. Two, they must go to the capital to look up their kinsfolk there. Three, they must go to the capital so that he might clear his accounts with the ministry and take receipt of a new installment of funds. And then there's a, a bit in brackets afterwards, needless to say. The sole substantial reason for going to the capital, Shuepan's desire to see the sites, was unexpressed. So he basically just wants to go there and, uh, you know, get drunk and try and have sex with women and, um, you know, go out and go to the theatre and, you know, gamble and, and what have you. Uh, but but he's kind of dressing up in these much more kind of noble and serious courses. And there's another detail kind of hidden in there where this idea of presenting his sister to the Ministry for Selection, uh, hmm. this is actually for selection potentially as like an imperial concubine. And so again, this theme of like of marriage and of um, various formal mm. interpersonal bondings reappears in this context, where what seems to be happening is that mm, if you're the the emperor, you don't go to you know necessarily go to someone on the street to find your um, potential mates. You actually kind of choose from within these elite lineages, these elite surname groups, and actually, it's a bit of an honor. Yeah, um, yeah. That's an interesting. I think maybe a potential like a parallel is being drawn, whether mm-hmm. in, uh, intentionally or not. No, I think that that's right. I think that that's right. And also, the, the sister has she been introduced yet in this in the chapter? I, I don't think so. Um, Balchai, not yeah, not really. No, okay, no. I mean, we we. We hear that basically she's Shuepan's younger sister, right. uh, and she's described as a girl of flawless looks and great natural refinement. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she also, so we're told that her father arranged for her education, uh, all of which she did ten times better than her oafish brother. Um, uh, but since her father's death, she's you know uh, put studying to one side to help with um, you know household duties. And so she's gonna she's gonna become kind of a uh, a counterpart to and a competitor with uh, Lindayu for uh, Jabalyu's affection. 
Right. And, yep. and she's also maybe in, in a lot of ways kind of a, um, a polar opposite in some capacity. Uh, there's, a, mm. there's a strong contrast between their um, personalities and maybe even their appearance. And so we're getting toward the end of the, the chapter, I'd say. There's some details yeah. about how, I mean, we're just hearing a lot of his terrible things about Shrepan. Maybe yeah. of all the characters we've encountered so far, he's the most like you know, consistently negative. He's almost like a villain. Yeah. yeah, he's the most, exactly. He's the most obviously bad character. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, so there's this quite funny part of this chapter where the, the writer, Tsao Xuexian, has, you know, has made clear that the only reason that Xuepan uh, is interested in going to the capital at all is because he just wants to, like, hang out with his mates and have a good time, get drunk, do stuff that... Uh, feckless rich young men do um <laughs> and because his immediate family the Shear family have you know a house of their own in the capital but one that several they houses several yeah. houses that, that, that they don't really use um he suggests that you know one of them be prepared for him to stay in so that you'll have a, a kind of base for kind of going out and living the good life and his mother is very dismissive of this idea and she says why would you do that when our you know clan you know because they're linked with the Jia clan by marriage she says why why would we get our own house when we can stay with the with the jar clan um they have you know they have space for us and it'd be part of the reason for going to the capital to see them so why would we not live with them if we're going there to do that uh and he is initially rather disappointed uh mm-hmm. downcast by all this uh because he thinks that you know if he's staying in the in the jar clan household then he'll be under watchful eyes and he won't be able so easily to kind of sneak out and go carousing. Uh, but there's a bit here that I just want to quote from the Hawks translation. But to his pleasant surprise, he discovered that the young males of the Jar establishment, half of whom he was already on familiar terms with before he had been there a month, were of the same idle, extravagant persuasion as himself and thought him a capital fellow and a boon companion. And so he found himself meeting them for a drinking party one day for theatre going the next, on a third day perhaps gambling with them or visiting brothels. For there were no limits to the depravity of their pleasures, and Xuepan, who was bad enough to start with, soon became ten times worse under their expert guidance. So um, that pretty much sums it up, doesn't it? That's that's broadly what the, the later part of this chapter is about. Is, is Exactly, yeah. Their journey to the capital and... Uh, <laughs> How how Xuepan, uh, who is let's not forget at this point a murderer, um, is um, right. is also like a just a a, a wastrel, just an all round bad character. Right, and so just just to review some of the like associations here. So Xuepan's mother is yeah. uh, the sister of Wang Furen or Lady Wang, who yeah. is married to uh, Jia Zheng, who yeah. is the father of uh Jia Bao Yu, right um and so yeah, you see exactly. how these so we have a few families here the wong family the shui family and the uh the, the Jia family and they're all kind of um through these systems of like intermarriages it's a really kind of complicated and like almost like a strong it's almost like a when you like knit something the, the yeah. various threads kind of hold each other together mm-hmm. uh I, I wonder if this is kind of a like a almost like a social they're very they're, dynamic, yeah exactly sociological they're, dynamic maybe they're very tightly bound together um uh, there is a really interesting thing that uh the usher says to jayutsun uh, earlier in the chapter when he's talking about these rich families in in nanjing but which i think actually 
is equally true of, of these families he mentioned. So he says, yi sun, ju sun, yi rong, ju rong, which is to say, if one suffers misfortune or is damaged or, or you know, suffers some loss, then they all suffer loss. If one achieves glory or honor, or if, you know, if one prospers, then they all prosper. Uh, and I think that that's exactly the same thing you're talking about, right? It's that, that they're very tightly bound together by kinship and through marriage, but also their, their fates in the same way are, are, are very kind of closely interlinked. I, I do think that as just a, a kind of sociological observation or just, you know, observation about society at the time, it's very interesting that the, the romance that's being set up here, the kind of love triangle between Jia Baoyu in the middle and Lin Daoyu on one side and um, Xue Baochai on the other uh, is, is interesting because they are each his first cousin. You know, it's not it's not cousin yeah, in the wise yeah, sense. It's sure. literal parents, siblings, child. Right. Um, exactly. Yeah. And um, and I don't know. It's uh, it's strange that that's not that well. So far, hasn't really been kind of commented on or or, or, or anything. Um, because whilst I suppose cousin marriage is not unheard of, you know, I think it was very common uh, historically. I had often thought that it was not usually between first cousins, but you know, a bit further out. Otherwise, you end up with these, you know. That's how you end up like those great kind of European royal families where everyone's got a giant chin and four fingers. I mean, yeah, that, that, that's always in the back of your head, right? And so I wonder if, if this was specifically chosen to be a, a bit scandalous or to arouse the, you know, because it is forbidden, it is just taboo, which in and of itself produces a, a kind of uh, its own yeah. form of desire, right? Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Um, um, or whether this actually was a, a common affair, and this really was a reflection of Tao Shui Chin's um, personal history in some capacity. And whether this was normal or not, yeah. Ah, uh, so he was he was an incest guy. I, I mean, that was his well, fetish. I, I mean, but you could think of. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to think of some examples. I, I mean, even yeah, if you go back to the story of Oedipus and the question of why that story was mm. um, so interesting in the ancient context, whether that was like a, a common problem or whether that was like a just something that was so sensational that it really captured people's attention and it it made for a good story in some mm. in some sense. That's always kind of yeah. in the back of my head. Uh, it's it's a, it's a really good point. Uh, yeah. Well, I think there is one case of uh, strongly suggested incest of a sort yeah. in, in this book. Yeah. Um, I think it, I think it occurs further on, but but there's a suggestion definitely that one of the female characters is having an affair with her husband's father. Right. We'll have to have like a whole like we could probably have a whole podcast just on yeah on that particular kind <laughs> of um, a transgression. Yeah, uh, I'm trying to think of kind of uh, closing closing sentiments. A anything we haven't discussed, or like things that you were thinking of. It's exactly as you said earlier. Whereas many of the other chapters were, they touched on that more like dream state stuff. Uh, you know, there 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 are moments of surrealism uh, where you have these magical characters appearing and disappearing or people fall asleep and wake up in a magical realm or, or whatever there's very little of that in this chapter this is very firmly grounded in uh real life and in you know ordinary human affairs uh, very obviously here you know crime and the consequences of it or, or lack thereof <clears throat> but also indeed indeed but but 
you know, power relations and wealth and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. I mean, I think this is a great defense of the usefulness of literature. A lot of people have been kind of, uh, you know, maybe you shouldn't read as much literature anymore. There's so much science occurring. There's so much, uh, like, studies occurring. But, like, when we have this kind of this portrait of a society, and it really has a, a fairly uh, impressive resolution, right? And I'm just thinking of the way, like, like, like social science is, is conducted at the moment, and just how impossible it would be for any current social scientist to try to represent what we've been talking about. I mean, how would they, where were their, I can't imagine what kind of equations they would try to use to uh, weigh all these varying factors. I, I mean, maybe one day you'll have a really like complicated, like formal logic of, um, of social relations situated in history. But it, it seems like until that happens... And especially when you look at the even the smallest like sort of associations and correlations that are trying that uh, social scientists have tried to establish, they don't reproduce half the time. There's a whole like problem in the field where they seem to be uh, very limited in their approach, and maybe they need a, a whole different approach to how they collect data, how they look for correlations, how they uh, address intervening factors. So, it, like as as someone who's studying literature, it's almost like well, you know, in the meantime, this is all we got say what you want like this is we can't experience Qing dynastic uh, like you know lived experience if you want to use a cliche term any other way than through literature and so the, the experience of this chapter was like well I didn't expect that sentiment or I didn't expect that to occur or I didn't realize this would be an issue I didn't realize yeah. you know uh, all, all these strange things that happened um, and rather than trying to I think we've done a pretty good job of not falling for the trap of like, you know, well, this character meets our our current moral standards and this character doesn't and this character is good, this character is bad and and this character represents a certain group and this, this character doesn't. Uh, mm -hmm. Instead, it's been more like what's going on and why is it familiar and why is it very not familiar at the same time and how does that work and how are we? How are we dealing with yeah. that? That's kind of the... Yeah, I think that's completely right. Yeah, I don't know. That's what I've been, I've been thinking about. The next chapter, chapter five, is one of the most famous. Again, we have the infamous uh, dream sequence. Yeah. Right? Yeah, we have the song cycle as Jabayu visits the land of illusion. Okay. So uh, uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Tune in next week for another exciting installation of Rereading the Stone. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.